Hello everyone, my name is Anne Bertolotti. I'm a program leader at the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge uh, in the UK. And this is the second talk uh, of a series of, of three that I'll uh, be presenting to you. My first talk uh, was uh, giving you my uh, sort of uh, personal perspective on the historical overview of protein phosphatases. And in this second talk, I will tell you how uh, we discovered how we can selectively inhibit uh, phosphatase. And there'll be a follow-up talk, uh, which will uh, uh, present for you a set of uh, principles and assays that can be used to study phosphatases and identify uh, selective phosphatase inhibitors. And in the background of all this, I'll try to uh, illustrate for you the power and the benefit of phosphatase inhibition, particularly in the context of neurodegenerative diseases. So, my lab has been uh, interested in uh, misfolded proteins for many years. Uh, these uh, represent a huge problem of, for cells and organisms, and, and their accumulation in the form of insoluble aggregates is actually at the origin of a broad range of human diseases, including uh, the devastating neurodegenerative diseases that affect an increasing number of individuals in our aging uh, societies. So, uh, the disease uh, shown uh, here, uh, Alzheimer's, uh, Parkinson's, uh, ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, Huntington's disease, are all very different, right? They uh, present with very different uh, clinical uh, manifestations. The faulty protein in each uh, disease uh, is different. But at the origin of these different diseases, I think what we have is a common uh, molecular and cellular problem, which begins when cells uh, fail to handle these uh, proteins that then tend to misfold and aggregate, leading to uh, catastrophic consequences for cells and organisms. Now, there's something very important, an important common feature to these diverse uh, neurodegenerative diseases is the fact that they start late in life. And this is very important because it turns out that the disease-causing proteins are actually expressed throughout the life of individuals, but the diseases only start late in life. So, what does it tell us? It tells us something very, very important. It tells us that we have mechanisms that normally function very well in neutralizing these bad proteins that we produce at all times. So, what are they? These are sort of uh, natural self-defense mechanisms against misfolded proteins. So, we have, on one hand, chaperones that prevent uh, protein aggregation. We also have uh, degradation machineries, the proteasome and autophagy, that uh, remove these uh, bad proteins before uh, they accumulate. And all these systems function very well together for years, for decades even, up to a point. As we age, uh, it looks like uh, the system gets overwhelmed, leading to accumulation of proteins that should normally uh, be degraded, degraded. And, and this is really bad for cells and organisms because the accumulation of these uh, proteins lead to a broad range of human diseases, such as uh, the devastating neurodegenerative diseases. So, if we appreciate that overwhelming uh, natural defense mechanisms uh, against misfolded proteins leads to uh, a broad range of diseases, then a simple idea comes to mind, right? Our system normally work well for years, for decades even. So perhaps we can try and think about these self-defense mechanisms and try and boost them in order to correct 
the protein folding deficits that are causing a broad range of human diseases. So the idea is fairly rational, but then the big challenge comes, how on earth are we going to do this? So we've learned a great deal about protein quality control systems um, in the past 20, uh, 30 years or so. And the only point I'm trying to make on this slide is these, these systems are very complex. We have multiple signaling pathways. They're all interconnected. We have negative feedback loops everywhere. So it's very difficult, although we've learned a lot about these uh, mechanisms, it's very difficult to rationally predict how to improve the system for potential uh, therapeutic uh, benefit. And if, if you think about it, it's not too surprising because these systems have evolved through billion years of evolution. And what we want to do, we want to improve uh, this system. So in other words, we want to beat Mother Nature and, and do better. Uh, so realizing uh, these challenging, we decided to embark on unbiased approaches. By that, I mean, rather than deciding, well, it should be good to modify things one way or the other, we let the cells tell us how uh, we can manipulate them uh, to improve uh, their survival under catastrophic conditions that we in the lab create by blocking key components of protein quality control systems, leading to massive accumulation of misfolded proteins. So in this way, we sort of mimic the molecular problem, which is at the origin of a broad range of human uh, diseases. So I've sort of converted a, a, a complex uh, organismal problem into a, a more tractable, if you like, a cellular problem. And so by, by causing massive accumulation of misfolding, misfolded proteins in cells, this usually kills cells. And this provides us with a really robust uh, cellular model that we can use and ask, can we find ways to help cells survive in the presence of misfolded proteins? And our idea is, well, if we find a way to do that, perhaps this can lead to uh, treatments that could benefit not just one, but actually a broad range of human diseases caused by accumulation of misfolded proteins. So over the years, um, in my lab, we've exploited this uh, paradigm in, in many ways. Uh, but in today's talk, I don't have time to give you an overview of, of all what we've done. In some occasions, we've identified some uh, um, approaches that actually uh, led us to discover some new components of protein quality control systems. But in today's talk, uh, what I would like to uh, share with you is how uh, we discovered an approach that helps cells survive uh, massive accumulation of misfolded proteins, and how we've been able to uh, implement this approach in models, in a model of a rare uh, disease and, and there's hope that perhaps uh, approaches like this aiming at uh, helping cells surviving protein quality control uh, or protein folding uh, catastrophes, uh, there's hope that we can uh, perhaps uh, develop these approaches for uh, therapeutic uh, benefit. So how did it all uh, start? First, let me uh, uh, present to you the experimental system. So in the lab, we uh, create artificially, uh, we cause massive accumulation of misfolded proteins in cells. Uh, in this case, by treating cells with a drug that is called tunicamycin. Tunicamycin blocks ending glycosylation. And this is a post-translational modification, which is important for proteins to fold uh, in the endoplasmic uh, reticulum, which is uh, depicted here. 
And when we treat cells with tunicamycin, the proteins that are made in the endoplasmic reticulum, which, by the way, are proteins that uh, will be uh, destined to be secreted, such as hormones or proteins that are uh, destined to be uh, at the cell surface, or such as transmembrane receptors, those proteins are made in the ER. If we treat cells with tunicamycin, they can't fold. They accumulate in a misfolded uh, state. And this is very bad. As you can see here, the cells just die under these conditions. So that provides us with a system that we can use. And we uh, use this system in a sort of pro-survival screen to look for um, ways to help cells surviving under these uh, catastrophic uh, conditions. And we found a small molecule uh, which uh, name is uh, guanabans, which was fairly potent in protecting cells from this protein misfolding uh, condition. Uh, by that, I mean uh, guanabans protected cells uh, when used at, at concentration in the sub-micromolar range. So because it was fairly potent, and because we know rather well the mechanism by which cells uh, defend themselves against uh, accumulation of misfolded proteins in the endoplasmic reticulum. They do so uh, by turning on a, a defense mechanism that is known as the uh, unfolded protein response. I'd like to highlight the fact that this uh, starts by misfolding problems in the endoplasmic reticulum. So we know very well this defense uh, mechanism, and I, I, it turns out that I contributed to discover some components of this pathway uh, many years ago uh, as a postdoc. So because because um, uh, compound guanabans was fairly potent, and because we know well the mechanisms by which cells defend themselves against misfolded protein in the endoplasmic reticulum, we thought we would have a way uh, to identify the mechanism of action of this uh, cytoprotective uh, molecule. And so we embarked on a detective uh, expedition, as, as we like them, scrutinizing the different components of this uh, cellular uh, response. And, and the uh, detective in this piece of work was a, a postdoc in the lab, uh, Pavel Seitler, who found out how guanabans protected cells. And I'm now going to zoom into uh, this uh, the middle branch of this uh, pathway. So uh, let me uh, introduce this uh, stress uh, signaling event as, as a, um, an immediate first line of defense against many forms of stresses. Cells react by phosphorylating a translation initiation factor, EIF to alpha, and as a result of that, this leads to a reduction of uh, protein synthesis. And this is a, a, a signaling event which is vital for cells and organisms to cope with many forms of stresses. And an immediate benefit of this signaling event is as follows. Under normal circumstances, cells are busy producing uh, thousands of proteins. In essence, a cell is a protein factory. And so if you decrease ever so slightly even, the rates of protein synthesis then dispares the availability of existing resources to handle the challenges. And this is how this uh, phosphorylation of EF2 alpha protects cells from many forms of insults. So that's uh, the, the, for, for, for the first background uh, information about this pathway. But it's also very important that this signaling event is uh, transient, as many stress uh, uh, signaling events, uh, phosphorylation of EF2 alpha needs to be transient because you don't want to uh, 
slow down protein synthesis for too long. This would be uh, detrimental. So this is why we uh, mammals have evolved with two uh, selective EIF2 alpha phosphatases, and these phosphatases belong to the uh, uh, family of PP1. Uh, phosphatases that I've introduced uh, in the first uh, talk. And these enzymes are peculiar in the sense that they are split enzymes. They are composed of two components uh, that need to be together for the enzyme to be fully functional. Uh, the one component is the catalytic subunit PP1, which turns out to be common to actually more than 200 oloenzymes. And the selectivity of uh, the EIF2 alpha phosphatases is uh, encoded by two uh, non-catalytic uh, subunit. The first one that uh, was discovered is uh, R15A, and uh, it's um, not expressed it all in all cells. It's actually stress-inducible. R15A is made when EIF2-alpha is uh, phosphorylated, and in this way, uh, R15A is a component of a negative feedback loop that terminates uh, this stress signaling event. But in addition to R15A, we also have uh, R15B, uh, which is uh, functionally related to R15A, although uh, different. It's encoded by a different gene, and it's actually expressed uh, in all cells, as far as we can tell, and um, in all um, tissues. So if you read about uh, this uh, uh, signaling uh, event in the literature, what you will find is that this is a stress response but the way I think about it uh, today is actually more along the line of a rheostat, whereby uh, phosphorylation of EF2-alpha is uh, uh, controlled by the antagonistic action of the EF2-alpha kinases and EF2-alpha phosphatases to adjust the rate of protein synthesis to precisely match uh, the demand. So that's uh, it for the introduction on the signaling pathway. And this was to uh, tell you that actually uh, guanabans, remember these compounds that protect cells from protein misfolding insults in the endoplasmic reticulum, does that by binding uh, selectively to uh, R15A, but it doesn't bind uh, to R15B. And the consequence of that is guanabans inhibits uh, R15A, and this actually prolongs the duration of the translation attenuation which results from stress. So stress leads to phosphorylation of EF2-alpha, and as, as a result of that, protein synthesis is attenuated, and translation recovery is then mediated by R15A. Here we've discovered a selective inhibitor of R15A, which then acts by delaying uh, translation uh, recovery, right? And what's important to note is that although uh, translation recovery in the presence of guanabans uh, is delayed, it's not abolished, and this is because we have another phosphatase, R15B PP1, which is not inhibited uh, by our compound. And this is very important. The selectivity of the compound here is key because if we inhibit uh, the two phosphatases, this is actually uh, deleterious in the long run because a persistent inhibition of protein synthesis is not uh, desirable. Right? So to better uh, uh, show you the dynamic of this pathway, I've actually uh, prepared a, a short animation that summarizes uh, 10 years of work in one minute. So here we go. Under optimal circumstances, the cells are busy making thousands of proteins 
that are required to execute uh, virtually all uh, cellular function. And, and this process requires chaperones, this little hand in orange here, that are important in making sure that proteins fold properly and prevent uh, aggregation. I've told you that we make errors, we make misfolded proteins to some degree at all times, but we are able to deal with our misfolded proteins. Chaperones are also important in targeting these abnormal proteins to degradation. Here I'm showing uh, the prior So this system works well up to a point. As we age or in diseases, we accumulate uh, these bad proteins. And one way uh, to defend ourselves against this consists in phosphorylating uh, EIF2 alpha, slowing down the rates of protein synthesis. And this enables the chaperones that are normally busy in assisting the folding of newly synthesized proteins to actually deal with the misfolded ones. And this is one way uh, this pathway is uh, protective. So this uh, led us to realize that we have here a very a straightforward and very potent way to correct a protein folding a problem. We can fine-tune protein synthesis by inhibiting R15A, and this in turn increases protein quality control capacity. So this is precisely uh, what we uh, were dreaming of doing, looking for strategies to treat uh, protein uh, misfolding uh, diseases. And we were very keen uh, to test uh, this possibility Unfortunately, as often in science, uh, whilst these findings were these findings were really exciting, we couldn't quite go forward with guanavans. We had to take a big step back, uh, which took some years. And the reason um, is as follows: It turns out that guanabans has another uh, activity. It's not just uh, the R15A uh, inhibitor that I've described to you, but it actually was a marketed drug uh, which was developed in the mid-80s for the treatment of um, hypertension. Uh, so for us, uh, uh, this is an undesirable effect because uh, by... Uh, so guanabase is an alpha-2 adrenergic it ha uh, agonist. It has nanomolar affinity uh, for its uh, receptor. And so uh, if we want to treat uh, uh, animals or mammals with... Um, R15, uh, to, to cause R15A inhibition, the dominant effect of this molecule is actually to lower blood pressure. And this is a problem because it comes with coma and drowsiness at high doses. And actually, uh, this compound is no longer used in the clinic. So when we read about uh, the idea of drug repurposing, uh, it's a tem tempting idea indeed, but we need to keep in mind that the first activity for which a drug might have been developed could become a big liability. And in this case, it is a big liability. We don't want to lower blood pressure. So we had to take a step back and look for selective R15A uh, inhibitor. Fortunately, we realized very early on in the uh, path that led to the discovery of guanabans, we realized that uh, the activity uh, of uh, guanabans vis-a-vis R15A and protection from protein misfolding stress has nothing to do with the adrenergic uh, receptor. The first reason for that is the cells we used in the experiments I've shown you don't express the adrenergic receptor. So that told us immediately that there was an, another target and that the two activities of this small molecule were separate. And so we reasoned that if the two activities are separate, we should be able to identify a compound that could selectively inhibit R15A, but not um, targeting uh, the adrenergic receptor anymore. And so uh, we initially, because uh, guanabans had been developed in the mid-80s, there were a number of, of molecules um, closely related to guanabans that were actually 
uh, commercially available. So we initially started with uh, commercially available molecules and, and we screened a number of such molecules. And uh, I'm sparing you the failures here, but most of the molecules we screened were completely inactive against uh, R15A. But uh, one of them uh, remained active, and we called this molecule Cephin-1. And as you can see, it's a, it's a very close derivative of, of guanabase. It, it's only a small modification. So here we've removed the chlorine substitution in position 6, and you'll see this dramatically uh, changes the, the property of this uh, small molecule. But... First, uh, let me show you that Cephin-1, uh, as uh, guanabase, um, binds uh, selectively uh, to R15A, and as a result of that, it protects cells from this uh, uh, protein misfolding in cells that we trigger with tunicamycin. And importantly, we find that if we use cells that are knocked out uh, for R15A, we lose the cytoprotective effect of uh, Cephin, which suggests that all the measurable effects of the compound that we see here at these concentrations are due to inhibition of R15A. So we are looking at an on-target effect of this uh, molecule. Our good fortune here is that Cephin is closely uh, related to guanabase, and guanabase had been um, initially developed as a centrally active uh, drug, so it crosses the blood-brain barrier, and so does uh, cephin. Both are orally available, rapidly distributed to uh, tissues, and we uh, uh, performed some uh, tolerability studies uh, in mice initially and found that uh, cephin is uh, well uh, tolerated and we didn't observe any overt uh, toxicity. So this was uh, exciting and it was really important indeed to develop uh, Cephin here. I'm showing you an experiment where you can see uh, mice that had been uh, treated uh, with guanabase from 1 or 10 milligram kilo doses that we need to inhibit R15 in vivo. You see that we have uh, massive uh, sedation. The mice don't move, actually. But, and this is due to the adrenergic activity of guanabase. Uh, but the Cephin-treated mice, as you can see, don't have uh, this problem because uh, the removal of this substitution uh, on cephin has uh, engineered out the adrenergic activity. So this was great. Uh, we have a compound. We can work out uh, the concentration we want to use it uh, if we want to use it in vivo. So the way uh, this worked was a combination of uh, pharmacokinetic studies where we measure the concentration of the compound in the tissues of interest combined with the potency of the compound uh, as we've seen uh, in cells. And so we've chosen to uh, treat uh, mammals with a concentration ranging from one to five uh, milligram per kilo. This corresponds to the concentration used here in cells where we know uh, the compound uh, is selective. So great. We have a small molecule. It took us many years to get there. We have a small molecule that we can use uh, to test this initial idea that was in the back of our mind for a long time can we improve protein folding in um, mammals and can we use this approach to uh, treat uh, neurodegenerative diseases? And uh, don't get your hopes too high because the disease I'm going to discuss now is none of these common neurodegenerative diseases. We actually turned our attention to a rare disease and the reason is, is because of the way uh, cephin and guanabans uh, were discovered. So remember we found that both cephin and guanabase protected cells from protein misfolding problems in the endoplasmic reticulum. 
right? This is a specific subcellular localization, whilst the other neurodegenerative diseases, the more common neurodegenerative diseases shown here, in this disease, the misfolding pathology is not in the endoplasmic reticulum, but actually uh, in the cytosol or in the nucleus. So realizing this, we thought, let's be careful here and look for a disease where the misfolding pathology is in the endoplasmic reticulum. And so that got us interested in Charcot-Maritus 1b. It's a very rare peripheral neuropathy, but it's a clear, what I'd call, uh, ER stress disorder. So this disease is caused by a dominantly uh, inherited mutation in a protein called uh, myelin protein zero, uh, which is one of the most abundant protein that is made uh, by Schwann cells in our peripheral nervous system. And as a result of the CMT1B causing mutation, the protein misfolds, and actually it is, uh, for this reason, retained in the ER as a misfolded protein, and this causes a typical uh, ER stress response. This has been uh, elucidated largely uh, by uh, Larry Rabbits together with um, Maurizio uh, D'Antonio. So we teamed up with uh, Larry and, and Maurizio who provided us uh, mice transgenic for uh, myelin protein zero with the mutation causing a, a, a form of Charcot-Maritus 1b. And uh, we characterized these mice had, as they had a, a uh, seen before us, uh, and we found that as in human, the CMT1B uh, mice um, uh, display motor deficit uh, with time. If we ask them to run on a rotor rod, they don't perform very well, they tend to uh, fall off, actually. And this is because uh, their Schwann cells is exhausted due to the accumulation of massive amounts of the misfolded uh, proteins causing Charcot-Maritus 1b. And as a result, uh, there's a very thin myelin uh, layers uh, uh, along the uh, axons of these nerves. It's, it's a very uh, obvious uh, deficit. So uh, a really talented postdoc in my lab, Indrajit Das, went on and, and, and treated these mice uh, for five months by oral gavage. Uh, it was a, a big effort, but it did pay off because he found that cephine actually uh, prevented uh, the motor deficit uh, in these uh, transgenic mice. And this came about because uh, it rescued uh, myelin thickness in the sciatic nerves of these mice. And this is because it alleviated uh, the stress resulting from the misfolding of these proteins. So following the work I've uh, described to you uh, with both guanabans and cephin, a number of clinical trials uh, have been started, first with guanabans because it's an FDA-approved drug, but some obviously encounter the same problem as I've shown you with mice. The adrenergic activities is a problem, and there's recently a trial that has started uh, with uh, cephin. Uh, this is exciting, but it's obviously too early uh, to tell whether it could uh, be uh, applicable in humans. But surely we've learned uh, through this work that we can enhance uh, in this way protein quality control, uh, not only in cells, but also uh, in a mammal. And this can have a broad range of therapeutic uh, benefits. So this is exciting, particularly for me, who have spent um, now 20 years studying uh, the, the way cells uh, respond to uh, tunicamycin stress. And I must say, when we started this 20 years ago, uh, this was thought to be an esoteric, boring uh, piece of work. You know, who cares how healer cells deal with uh, tunicamycin? Well, it turns out that tunicamycin was 
a probe that uh, enable us to identify components of a signaling pathway which is evolutionarily conserved and therefore uh, important. We had no idea whatsoever that there could be a potential therapeutic benefit to uh, manipulating this pathway. But the point I'm trying to make here is that because a cell is a basic unit of an organism, whatever we study will inevitably have some a medical or therapeutic relevance one day or another. So it is worthwhile to uh, continue study, uh, studying the unknown. So I want to close on uh, a serendipitous uh, discovery that uh, came with this work, with, uh, which was the realization that we can uh, selectively inhibit a phosphatase by targeting uh, its regulatory subunit. And this was good news because phosphatases had acquired a very bad reputation over the years. They were thought to be uh, undruggable. So this uh, started because uh, people started uh, 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 generating uh, catalytic inhibitors of PP1, which is the common catalytic subunit to about hundreds of phosphatases in the cell. So if you inhibit PP1, it's not one enzyme that is inhibited, but actually hundreds, and that's toxic. But here we found, uh, as I presented to you, a way to selectively inhibit a phosphatase by targeting uh, its regulatory subunit. So we thought, well, in principle, we could perhaps uh, consider inhibiting uh, the other phosphatases in the same way and in this way open up a broad range perhaps of, of, of ways to manipulate cell function perhaps for therapeutic benefits. Remember, phosphatases control virtually all uh, bi biological processes. So there's a great uh, opportunity here to tap, uh, to, to uh, inhibit a class of enzyme that had been uh, previously uh, untapped. And, and, and this is exciting, but uh, we... Um, had to uh, find a way uh, to design uh, methods not only to study these phosphatases but also to identify uh, rational inhibitors. And this will be a topic uh, that I will develop in my third uh, presentation. So with that, uh, I'd like to uh, thank you for your attention and uh, thank also all uh, the people from my lab who uh, participated uh, in this work. Uh, these, these are all my lab members. Um, May, may look like a small group, and, and that's a, a typical feature of LMB. Uh, we have small groups, but very talented people who uh, did the work I just presented to you. Thank you very much.